Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 81 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Carlos Enriquez. I'm the bass player for the Jazz Lincoln Center Orchestra with Wynton Marcellus. And I just released a new album titled The South Bronx Story. Yeah, we have so much to talk about, Carlos. I'm so excited and flattered and honored that you agreed to do this. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me, Mitch. I really um, appreciate it. It's great. So, I mean, I always like starting off with the origin story of how someone got into the bass, because I do still, after all these years, consider it a very unique instrument and a very unique choice when you're young to make as an instrument and then stick with it professionally. I think that's like a whole next level of of, of crazy to me. But where I want to start with you is you mentioned Wynn Marsalis and, and the setup. You joined him after high school. I mean, you were 19 years old. That is the yeah. craziest. I mean, when I was reading about you, I knew you had been with him forever. I didn't realize, one, how close we are in age, but two, that talk about getting a gig out of the gates. You know, it's it's, it's funny. I I, rem- I recall my first um, gig with Winton. I was actually 16. So Winton, there was a period that Winton was doing all these fundraisers. And, you know, they were for either Bill Clinton or for political parties at the time. And at the time at Jazz Lincoln Center, they were trying to raise money for different um, concerts and and, and, uh, situations that they were trying to rebuild or build. And I was 16 when I started with Winton doing these uh, fundraisers. So that's how young I was. And I'm telling you, I didn't know what I was doing. Winton apparently saw some talent in me, you know, and um, we became very, very, very good friends. I'm telling you to the point where it was more about basketball and chess <laughs> rather than music when I was young. But, and Winton, you know, he, he basically just, he nurtured me all the jazz that, that he knew, introduced his family, beautiful family. And, um, you know, as I grew, you know, musically and especially in the, in the jazz world, you know, I, I, I was hired. I was hired by him, you know, when I was, I actually was 17 when I joined the Jazz Lincoln Center Orchestra. Then I turned 18 on the road. And then around 18 to 19, I joined the septet. What are your parents thinking at the time? <laughs> well, they had to consent, right? They had to give the consent. I remember my mom telling me, hey, somebody from the office at Winton's, uh, Winton Marcellus called to uh, ask me permission if you can go on tour. And I looked at her. I'm like, I hope you said yes. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, at the time, Mitch, at the time I was I was already working. So once I hit 16, I was already working professionally. It just wasn't in the jazz world. I was working heavily in the Latin world with Tito Puente, Eddie Parmeri, Tito Nieves. I mean, there there was a a plethora of Latin groups that I was already working with and traveling with. But Winton, for me, was a real high goal that I wanted to obtain because I really appreciated his style of an approach towards music, you know, it was very, very, you know, pure. And, and it was something that I, I, I've always wanted to approach music to my, you know, the way I thought about it. So, I mean, we have to back this up and understand, I, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this because at, uh, you know, 14, 15, maybe even 16 is when I first started playing. 
at this point, you're playing with the top of the tops in that Latin world, the, the Tito Puentes of the world. Winton already knows your name. You're in this circle. How, how does that happen? Like, where are you in the world that is giving you that kind of access and that kind of reputation? I mean, at that point in 1998, Winton could have played with anybody. And he's, to a certain degree, rolling the dice on a young kid. Yeah. You know, and I, I, I thank him. Every day I see him, I always thank him because, the, you know, for those who don't know Winton, this is uh, a common thing that he does. He rolls the dice on a lot of young musicians. He believed in giving young musicians the chance to flourish. And he got this idea from Art Blakey because Art Blakey gave him the chance at a very young age to join the Jazz Messengers. And at the time, Winton says that he wasn't prepared, you know, as a jazz musician to be with Art Blakey. However, Art Blakey really saw more in Winton and may, you know, and, and now we know Winton, who he is now. And because of the schooling through the jazz messengers, you know, he is where he he's at. And it's the same situation with me and many others. You know, he he saw there was a talent and, um, you know, and Winton was heavy. He really loved Afro-Cuban music. He loved salsa. He loved Latin stuff. So, for him, for him, it was like, you know, this is going to be a new element in my life. And I, I could learn from Carlos. And at the same time, I could help Carlos develop his, uh, his uh, you know, love for jazz and, and learn more about the history and, and, and get really into it. So, okay, yes. You're speaking about Carlos in that third person. But now let's talk about Carlos as this is you. You're 16 years old. You're playing with Tito Puente. <laughs> you're getting calls from Winton. You're telling your mom, you better say yes, so I can go on the road with Winton. How are you feeling? Is this, are you feeling, are you the person who has really good self-esteem? Like, you know, you can play like this and you're just going to go. Are you feeling a bit of the imposter syndrome? How are you feeling about who you are? Because this is, again, it's it's a crazy situation, Carlos. It's, uh, you know, I I try to recall the moment, you know, I I never went in with, with the feeling of, that I knew what I was doing and, and that I got this because I knew that I was learning. I knew that I was going to be put in positions that I had no idea because you got to understand, I mean, this music that we play is all about experience. It's about time. You know, there are people that, that are, are, are way into their career that still feel that they haven't reached the goals that they're trying to you know reach. So for me, at the age of 16, being able to be around all these people and to have the opportunity to play with them, it's a blessing. And, you know, when, you know, of course, yes, I was scared. You know, I, I listen, listen, I could, I could tell you many, many scenarios where I thought that this was it, you know, I, I'm going to be knocked back down and I'm going to have to work hard. You know, there was a scenario with uh, Shirley Horn, a uh, great jazz singer who, who had, a, who has or had a very distinct way to singing jazz tunes and 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 she was very um, float. What we we'll say, very floaty with the time. And as a bass player, and this is something that I learned very at a very young age. If you ever uh, accompany a singer, you better know the lyrics to the song, because it's not about melodic rhythms anymore. Because you have to know how the song functions with melody. So I remember at a young age, I must have been sixteen or seventeen. We had done a concert at 
Alice Tully Hall, or actually no, Avery Fisher Hall, and Shirley Horn was the special guest. And here I am as a young baby, 16, 17, with Winton, the Jazz Lincoln Center Orchestra. And at rehearsal, she calls Bass and Street Blues. Now, mind you, I've played, at that age, I've, I've already played Bass and Street Blues, but as an instrumental with a quartet, quintet. So for me to now get into it with a vocalist was a whole nother terrain. And this lady, Miss Horn, looked at me with that face like it was an old school jazz um, lesson that I, I'm telling you, it, it felt great now that I'm talking about it. But when, man, when I was 16, I, I was sweating. I mean, it was crazy. It was crazy. I was so scared. And she wasn't, she wasn't, um, she wasn't letting up, you know, she was not letting up. And she, she basically treated me like a, a, a professional jazz musician that she has worked with for many years. And, and she was really, you know, teaching me like, you got to learn the, you got to learn the lyrics. Look at me when I'm playing all these things. Right. So it was very intense, Mitch. And, and these are the many memories that I could tell you, I mean, that I could remember and talk about. Uh, of my growth, you know, of, of who I am as a bass player and what I had to deal with. And, you know, it's it's a it's a catch 22. It's a double edged sword. Right. Because many will tell you, well, man, you should have experienced you should have went through the training before you got there. But, you know, I would never I, I would never pass that up. I'd rather have Shirley Horn scream at me and tell me, learn the lyrics to Basin Street Blues and look at me and follow me rather than not have that opportunity, you know, so. These, these were the, the, the little things that, that I was dealing with at the age of 16 and 17. And there were many others. I mean, I could tell you stories of, uh, of other great musicians, you know, that, that I had to really, really sit down and go back home after the rehearsal and burn that midnight oil, what they, they said, you know, and start shedding and start figuring things out. So can you talk to me a little bit about what your life was like as a teenager? Because... We're coming off of the Olympics and you hear the stories of these young athletes and what they have given up in their lives to have this moment. It seems mm -hmm. to me that you had a very similar life. Like it was all music, all bass, all the time, because other, otherwise, how do you get to that point at such a young age? Were you just head down in the music? What was your life like? You know, uh, I, I was raised in the South Bronx and I, I was fortunate enough to go through a system of the Board of Education in New York City in the 80s where the public schools had music programs. Now, for some now, that might be like, whoa, you know, <laughs> a thing of the past because I remember towards the end of the 80s, early 90s, you know, then they started cutting programs. But in the 80s, I remember public school having a music class at least twice a day. So I was very interested in music at a very young age. My parents were both musically inclined. My dad played trombone when he was in college before he went to the before he went to Vietnam. And my mom was a dancer and a choreographer for TV stations in Puerto Rico. So <clears throat> it was a very interesting uh, combination of my parents also wanting me to get into music and at the same time of me also you know, being interested in it. So public school was a very um, focal point in my life and intermediate school because these were the two places where I started really enjoying 
the music and at the same time slowly wanting to get serious. Now, mind you, Mitch, I started out on classical guitar. So when I entered intermediate school, I started studying classical guitar. And for those three to four years before high school, I was a classical guitar major. And, and I, fiddled, <clears throat> I fooled around with the electric bass. And that's what actually kind of gave me that spark to start playing bass. Because the concert band teacher at the time, her name was Connie Grossman, who was still playing flute player, very adorable lady and adorable teacher. She used to tell me, hey, you know, the bass is the last four strings of the guitar. There's no way you, you, you can't do You could do this. It's a piece of cake. So I was like, yeah, I'll do it for you. And then, Mitch, I started slowly loving it. I was like, man, this is, this is, I like this, you know? And then it was like, uh, man, it was, it was like the book was written because then at my church, I attended a Pentecostal church with my family and the, the, the guitar player needed a bass player and there was a bass there. And I'm like, well, you know, I kind of play bass. And then one thing led to the other. So, you know, basically like the, like, I know you were comparing me to the Olympics, the gymnasts, but I was stuck instead of playing outside, you know, I, I, I dabbled with, with little league baseball, little league baseball and stuff like that. But I was mainly stuck inside of workshops and programs in public school and intermediate school that dealt with music and the arts and then after that, I would just head home and continue practicing or, you know, listen to music or try to figure things out. And that's that's how it slowly uh, began to grow. And uh, and then one thing led to another. You know, as a young as a young kid, I used to um, I was able to hang with my brother, Jose Henriquez, who who's a great mambo dancer and studied with Eddie Torres, who, who was who's still a great mambo dancer and instructor. And I would go with him to these clubs in New York City. At the time, it would be Club Broadway on 96th Street. And every last Sunday of a month, they would throw these like mega mambo dances with a great, with a great band playing. And I would show up and I would hang right next to the bass player. I would be back, like right behind the stage just watching the bass player play. And it was so intrigued. I was so intrigued and I was so fascinated by man, this guy is controlling this whole thing himself. And plus it looked cool, you know. I was like, man, check out this cat playing, you know? And and that was it, Mitch. I was I was uh it was sold, man. I was sold to to be the bass player and be a bass player. So everything kind of landed in the right spot, you know, and I and I I hung out with people, you know. It was something that I I tell people to, to I tell young musicians to do, Mitch, is you gotta go out and hang, man. You know, I hung with a lot of musicians. And I got to see a lot of musicians. I didn't get to play at that young age, but I got to stand and sit next to these great musicians. And because of that, I think I was given that extra, you know, extra length in terms of uh, being put into the, you know, ahead of the ahead of everyone else, I guess, you know, because everybody knew who I was. He was that young kid. He's enthused, you know, enthusiastic about his playing and blah, 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 you know, so. And tell me about just music in general as a, as a fan, as a listener, where that comes from. I mean, there's the Latin, there's the jazz, there's this Afro Latin, but you're also coming up in a time where there's Nirvana, there's hip hop. There's a mm -hmm. lot of things happening in popular music and the natural navigation for a 16 year old kid isn't always 
jazz. <laughs> it's, it's, no, it's, right. it's, it's real. It's really kind of out there. I'm sure the, your friends yeah. were looking at you like, we've got hip hop and, and all this crazy music going on. And you're like, like old school jazz. Like yeah. where did that love, do you know where that love comes from? That passion for, for all of those you types know, of music? You know, Major, that's a great, you know, great, um, talk about that. You know, how you, how you see that as a young kid, you know, I was really into everything. And the reason why, um, it's because most of the music that I listened to, whether it was pop, rock, you know, soul, you know, it was there were live live musicians playing. There were instruments playing. So for me, it was always like, wow, you know, there was really, you know, I mean, yeah, there were at the time there were some synthesizers, whatnot, but still there were musicians playing, you know, and, and it was it was it was that that caught my attention. Um, the jazz and the Latin was was mainly really driven into my life because of my dad, because my dad had friends at his job that were jazz fanatics and they would give my dad tapes of jazz musicians and they would he would forward them to me. And my dad would say, hey, check these tapes out. And, you know, and the tapes that I was being given were like Bill Evans. You know, at the time, I don't know who Bill Evans was. So Bill Levins with Eddie Gomez. Who's Eddie Gomez? I'm 16. Um, he would give me tapes of Paul Chambers. So I was a Paul Chambers fanatic around 16, 17. And it's all because of my dad. My dad gave me these tapes. <laughs> and I was like, man, this guy's playing the hell out the bass. But usually we don't take the tapes from our fathers. We take the tapes from our friends on the street. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, you're absolutely right. And it's crazy. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, there were, I remember having tapes of Madonna. Uh, I can name you a bunch of, uh, of other, like Santana. I had tapes of Santana, uh, Luther, Luther Vandross. I mean, we had early, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire. I, ha I had tapes of those, uh, of that style of music that I loved, you know. And, and of course, you remember, I was also playing electric bass, so I was also trying to imitate that style. But there was something about jazz afro latin music that really caught my attention and it was it was it was either the fact that the job the role of the bass is very crucial you know and now that i'm 42 and i've done research and, and checked out different styles of music it's come to my um sense that in african music lower part of the the lower part of the of the drums is the leading role of the music. You know what I'm saying? So it it basically just moves and it controls and it it, it detects the new groove or the new sound that you're trying to do. And in Latin music and in jazz, you kind of have that in there already. So for me, I felt like okay, my role is to not control, but to, to kind of guide where we're going. And it was, a, it, it felt good. You know, I had a great feeling doing that. And that's what really stuck to me. But you, you were still exposed to those types of genres that were happening at the time. Did they impact your playing? Did you think about them or did you constantly find yourself going back to the roots and where this music came from? Because at a certain point in your career, you start blending things. You start thinking about, Afro, Afro music, Latin music, jazz, you, that blending starts happening in a more intuitive way for you. 
Yeah, well, you know, it's 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 also. I mean, I gotta I gotta I gotta blame my parents for that because there was a a collect, It was the the sound of music in my home in my apartment was all over the place, right? So we would have, um, well, we would have, we would have like Louis Armstrong, then it would go to like Frank Sinatra, then it would be like a Dominican singer, Johnny Ventura, who just passed away. Then it would be Tito Puente, Eddie Parmeri. Then it would be like some African drumming, you know, and it would be all over the place. And as a kid, I was inheriting all of this sound, you know. This is like music in my ears as a little boy in the house. And sometimes, you know, my mom and dad would have these parties that they would stay up to like 4 a.m. blasting music and I would have to go to sleep. And what I would go to sleep to is just the bass and the drum part, you know, boom, 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 boom. Or it would be another boom, beep, beep, boom. And I would be sleeping to that and waking up to that sound. So it was something that was engraved in me even before I started the, the whole uh, research and, and, and liking it. I was already uh, it was embedded in my DNA already to, to lead the role of a bass player or, or the foundation of the music. You see, so interesting how that could be. Yeah, it's an it's an amazing story. So, how do you first meet Tito Puente? What the, we talked about, Winton, but let's talk about Tito. How do you meet him? What does he think when he sees you? How do you decide to start working together? Well, T- Tito, I met through. You know, this is this is a. It's, I'm gonna tell you how I did it. It's a great. Uh, if and I tell all the young students, if you want to get in with people, you got to name drop. You got to start dropping names, right? So. When I was in junior high school, I had the opportunity and the um, I had the not the not the charisma, but I had I had people around me that said, "Oh, you're so charismatic! Oh man, let me take you under my wing and I'll teach you, you know, the way." So I had a gentleman by the name of Victor Venegas, who's a great bass player who used to play with Kyle Jader, Herbie Hancock, Mongo Santa Maria. The list just goes on, and Victor was working in my junior high school with a subgroup called Los Cumbancheros, which is basically, uh, it was almost like a, an English and Spanish group or art, arts organization that just brought a lot of, you know, inner city kids to sing like roots music, you know, music from Santo Domingo, Puerto Rico, Mexico. It, it, it was just one of those programs and he was a part of it. So Victor was the name to drop. So I remember seeing Tito Puente in one of the Sundays that my brother had to go to these mega, these mega uh, mambo dances at Club Broadway. And I saw Tito and I just went up to him. I said, Tito, hey, how you doing? Hey, Victor Venegas says hi. And then his eyes opened up. He says, oh, Victor, yeah, tell him I say hi. And then I, and then I tell him, hey, Tito, I studied with Victor. You know, he told me to come and hang out. And, and Tito's like, oh, man, that's good, man. Nice to see you. And that was it. Once I got that, then I remember attending many other uh, Tito Puente rehearsals because I would, I would ask, like, the bass player at the time, who was Johnny Torres or Ruben Rodriguez, great bass players. Andy Gonzalez is another one who took me under his wing. And I would say, hey, when's the next rehearsal with Tito? He says, oh, come to Carol's studio on 41st on Saturday at 2, from 2 to 6. So I would tell my mom, hey, mom, I'm going to Carol's. Can I, you know, can my brother take me, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I would go and Tito would see me. And Tito was like, hey, how's Victor? I said, oh, Victor's great, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, we'll talk, you know, I'm playing bass, you know. So what I would do then 
Mitch, is sometimes the bass player would have to use the bathroom, you know, and I would tell, I would ask, hey, you know, can I, can I just jump in while you're using the bathroom? They're like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. So then I would just take the bass and I would play. And Tito would see that. And all the guys would see like, oh, damn, look at this young 15, 16-year-old playing. Oh, man. And then then it was, then a whole nother conversation would start. Oh, so who you study? Blah, blah, blah. What you doing? What you doing? You know? Hey, and then that's how it happened. Then one day the bass player couldn't make it. And Tito was like, yo, call, call Victor's student, Carlos. <laughs> and that was it. And then one thing led to another. And and it was it was un- it was unbelievable, man. It was um, it was uh, it was like a chain reaction because once somebody saw you, then everybody else started talking about it. But that's how I got to to play with Tito, and then I got really close to him, got to record with Tito, and 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 really talk to him about how music was for him, and 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 you know how he how he dealt with all all the years of, of recording and playing. You know, it, it was very interesting. A great, he was, he is, he was a great man. You know, he treated me like, like one of his, you know, in his family. Um, you know, he didn't let me slip. Like he didn't, he didn't let me, uh, he didn't give me any leeway. You know, he treated me like everyone else in terms of business and making sure the music was right, Mitch. But he, uh, he was a great guy, you know, and it's very fond memories. And I think, you know, I'm very blessed to have been around him. I mean, there's other musicians that might stand out on the periphery now that if you think about the story we've been talking about to date, played with Willie Nelson, Bob Dylan, Stevie Wonder, Lenny Kravitz. How do those relationships start playing into it? Are these musicians, <laughs> is it a session thing? Are people thinking, well, he's a jazz Afro? Like, how yeah. do you maneuver into those worlds? Well, you know, it's, Mitch, it's, I've always said, once you get yourself into a, into a position where you're surrounded by great musicians, then, then other great musicians usually pop up. And, you know, and, and to be honest with you, that, that list that you just named right there, all that is accredited to Winton, you know, because we have, we've done so many collaborations and most of these uh, great, like Bob Dylan, Willie Nelson, have, have been, you know, to Jazz Lincoln Center, has worked with us, has hired us, separately to work with them. Lenny Kravitz, you know, uh, I have ver- a lot of fond memories of Willie Nelson. Willie really took a liking to me. And, and I remember hanging with him and it's like, I've been on the bus with Willie and I've hung with Willie, you know, so I, I know Willie very well. You know, Willie Nelson is a great man. He loves jazz. He loves American music. And he, um, you know, he he took a lot. He took a lot of love for for me, for the other cats in the band, Ali, Dan Nimmer, Walter, when we were playing with them. And, and you know, it, it's uh, like I said, when you're surrounded, Mitch, with with great musicians, it's like being around with family. You know, they kind of speak the same language. You know, and it's not a show off contest. It's more of a spiritual thing. You know, they they see your dedication towards you know this great American music. You know, and, and they see how much you respect, you know, the music. Like, you you respect country music. You respect, you know, bluegrass. You respect the blues, you know. Country, you know, all that stuff. You, you start, people see that and they, and, they, and they respect that. And that's how you slowly start playing with all these cats, you know. 
So it, it, your career is so fascinating to me. Uh, beyond this, you sit on the faculty at Northwestern University, their School of Music. You've been there since 2008. Music director at Jazz, the Lincoln Center Orchestra. There's also this aspect of education that has not just been a part of how you were able to get into the business, but it seems to me that you also want to be very active in helping other people figure this out, whether it's philosophically, whether it's name dropping or whether it's really playing and learning how to play. Sure. Yeah. There, there are players who can play and there are players who can teach, but it's, it's not often you get the hybrid of teachers who can also always play, right? There are those who can do, and there are those who teach type of thing, but you're mm -hmm. able to do both. And I was wondering how you see your role as an educator and why that part of music really interests you to this day. Well, you know, Mitch, I, I got to tell you, I mean, my, my, my life, my position now, my career, where I'm at now is all because of all the educators I've dealt with as a, as a young man, as a young student. And if it wasn't for them, I would never be here because I, they taught me so much, you know, as a young student. So, you know, as, you know, as being a part of Jazz Lincoln Center and their mission also to educate you know, through, you know, through jazz and through entertainment and the music, I, I became very, um, what they say, uh, in love, in love with education because I felt that giving back was the way to go. And I, I've also wanted to figure out ways to, to teach kids, um, knowing that I could also play, you know, it doesn't always have to be, uh, script. You know, you know, some people always, oh, you got to you got to go from this book, go to this page 20. You know, it's almost like, let me kind of teach you how I learned how to play. And this is how I figured things out. This is how I use my ears. You know, so I really got involved. And of course, with my 20 year tenure here at the Jazz Nicholson Orchestra, we've done so many master classes and individual teachings that it's, um, you know, it, it's almost like second. It's like secondhand. It's like, you know. Uh, you know, I do it, you know, I breathe it, you know, and Northwestern that came about when Victor Goins, who is our tenor player, was given the opportunity to become the director of the jazz program in 2008. And, and Victor Goins asked me, he's like, hey, man, you want to come over there with me and, and, and teach? And I was like, yeah, I'll go. And yeah, I've been there 12 years now. And it's a great program in Northwestern. Northwestern is an unbelievable school. And, um, and Victor's done a great job there. And it's, you know, you'll be surprised the amount of talent that's out there, Mitch. It's ridiculous. Now, it's crazy. I mean, when I was growing up in the 90s, in the 80s and 90s, I didn't really see it. You know, we didn't have social media. So we didn't know, like, you know, hey, there's somebody in Connecticut or somebody in Seattle that could really play. It took a minute for you to get, you know, word of mouth to come around. But now, man, there's so many great musicians. And, and it's, it's crazy. You know, but it's because of the education and it's because of the love that people have towards this music. And it all derives from, you know, educators. Can you talk a bit about, I mean, I want to talk a little bit. It, it's not really a new album. It is a new album, but it's not really a new album. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing because you go back and it's 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 been a couple of years in the making, I think, this idea of of building this the South Bronx story, correct? I mean, this has been a, a project. Yeah. It, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. The pandemic really put a it, it placed a stop on it because it should have been out 
way before the pandemic came. But it was a project that was put into the season at Jazz Lincoln Center in 2018, I think it was. And, uh, you know, I, I just decided, you know what, I'm going to write I'm going to write 10 songs. I'm going to do a suite. I'm going to call it the South Bronx story. You know, and I'm going to depict certain, you know, certain elements of my life that I remember as a child. I'm going to depict some historical facts of the South Bronx. And I'm going to write music to it. I'm going to bring my friends and give it a twist, you know, like, you know, salsa meets jazz or salsa meets Latin jazz and and just do it. And and it it was a success. The, The people loved it. And people kept craving, like, man, when is this coming out? And I'm like, man, I didn't record this. You know, <laughs> I didn't do anything. You know, I didn't record this at all. So people kept, you know, hounding me. You got to record this. You got to record this. So there's a gentleman by the name of Michael Frickless, who, who is also associated with Jazz Looking Center, uh, who is a member of the board of, direct, uh, the board of directors there. And he, he said, hey, man, you know, you should release this record. And if you need help, let me know. I have friends that can help you and we could put something together and we could start, let the, you know, get the ball rolling. So I'm thinking, I'm like, man, you know what? Maybe this, maybe we should do this. So I started recording as soon as, as soon as, you know, I was given the green light, I put this on, on, um, you know, on real to real, as they say. (laughs) And, um, and then, um, the pandemic hit. And then everything slowed down, you know, and I was like, man, I'm not going to be able to get these mixes out. We're not going to be able to do overdubs. So, you know, we really pushed hard and we finally, finally was able to get a release date and and get this out to the public, you know, at least digitally, you know, and, and have them check it out. You know, it's a great it's a great album because there's a story behind it. Um, and every time I've performed it, I tell the story before each song. And some of them are funny, some of them are sad, you know. You know, I have one there called Moses on the Cross, and they're so sacrilegious. People hear that, they're like, oh, man, this guy is crazy. What are we talking about, Moses on the Cross? And then when I start explaining to them that I'm talking about Robert Moses and the expansion program of the Cross Bronx and how crazy it was and how it divided the South Bronx and, and you know, changed the whole uh, – scenery of the Bronx, then people are like, oh, you know, then they take a, a big sigh of relief, you know. But, they're, you know, the, the, I'm very proud of this album. Uh, I'm really happy that it's out. I'm really proud of everyone else who's on part of it. Uh, man, it's, it's, it's an unbelievable uh, production. I'm curious. I'm a, I'm a guy who lives in Montreal, Canada. We, we talked about the Montreal Jazz Festival before we hit record. But can you explain to me, to people who may not understand culturally, what is it about the South Bronx? What makes it so unique? What what makes it so impactful? Well, the South Bronx is very interesting in many ways because there, there, there's, there's negative sides of it, uh, the side to it, and there's always the positive side to it. So, you know, the South Bronx took, took a, a liking to a lot of P- Puerto Ricans. Um, African-Americans and Puerto Ricans. Man, poverty was very high in the South Bronx. And, and, and you know, it was, it was a struggle to live in the South Bronx. And, you know, people weren't able to get by. It was a really, really hard neighborhood to live in. But to also, you know, you got to, you know, pass by with a family. It was very hard. You know, a lot of, there was a lot of gangs. 
you know, that, that were, you know, they were created to unfortunately protect families, but also to do harm, which is crazy. But it was because of the system that people lived in. But the South Bronx is, is, is really known for the cultural integration. Um, when, I was re- when I was growing up in the South Bronx, integration was, was something of, beaut- uh, of beauty. Because I had, in school, I, was, I had a, a bunch of African-Americans. I had Jewish friends, Italians, Chinese, Irish, you just name them, Mexicans. They were all over the place. And there was never one class or, or, or one ethnic group, right? It was always an integrated group. So the South Bronx is, is known for that. And it's also known because of, if you really do the history of how hip-hop was created, it was created basically out of an integration through Latinos and blacks in gang-oriented neighborhoods. You know, there was... There's a song on, on my album called Black Benji. And Black Benji, even though he was a part of a gang called the Ghetto Brothers, Black Benji, whose real name is Cornell Benjamin, his job was to um, conduct peace with other gang members. See, the Ghetto Brothers, you know, even though they were, they, you seem, they seem like they were really like a ruthless, really crazy, tough group. They were basically trying to promote peace and educate Latinos and African-Americans. So Black Benji, unfortunately, got killed. He got killed because he was trying to promote some type of a peace truth truth against other gangs so that the neighborhoods could be safe. So anyway, this just created this uproar. Right. And and the South Bronx was basically it was going to be a bloodbath of gangs trying to you know, avenge this guy's death. Because of his death, there was this meeting at the Girls and Boys Club on Hoe Avenue in the South Bronx with all the gang leaders of the South Bronx. It was crazy. Not one police was involved. And they all got together and they all settled their differences. And there's videos of this. And if you listen to how the the gang leaders talk about what they're trying to fight for, it's unbelievable how insane everyone repeats the same problem. So these guys are basically were basically killing or hurting themselves because of the same issues that they were trying to fight and trying to survive within the system. So they all figured it out. They're like, man, we got to stop this. We got to try to integrate and get together and help out people. So because of that, all of a sudden they started having all these block parties and integrating gangs with other gangs, blacks and Latinos, interracial uh, relationships started coming about, and then the hip hop era came about. Then you had, you know, you had Africa Bombada and all these people, you know, putting black parties with all these rappers and people singing poetic uh, rhymes, and that's how hip hop culture came to be in the South Bronx. And of course. You know, hip hop is where it's at now. But if you think about it in this purest form, Mitch, it's unbelievable how much they were trying to reach out for help. You know, and and some of the early, early hip hop, if you listen to the words, you know, without the profanity, because I never I never enjoyed profanity much in hip hop. But the message itself in the early days was was deep. It was so unbelievable how much pain they were going through. 
and South the South Bronx is it's a, it's a valuable location for that. And musically, not I mean I'm just talking about the hip hop because of the popularity that that has, Mitch. Now, but I mean we could talk about what it did for for jazz, what it did for mambo, what it did for salsa. You know, many great jazz musicians lived in the South Bronx. Thelonious Monk lived on Bruckner Boulevard. Um, Chick Corea used to play with Kenny uh, Doran in Hunts Point. I mean, there were many different clubs in the Bronx. I remember talking to Chick about it. So the Bronx is special, and it's a it's a it's a place that needs to be glorified for for its uh, trial and tribulations. Man, a lot of great people came out of the South Bronx. Amazing how music music genres really come out of this 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 these pressure cookers. Positive mm-hmm. and negative. I mean, usually yeah. more negative than positive. Unfortunately, you're right, yeah. You know, I think about, one of the things that people I don't think get about jazz is, you know, oh, jazz is old and they listen to, you know, metal or whatever they listen to. It's like jazz was punk. Jazz was metal when it started. It was this reactionary genre that was created to to soothe people out of this contemporary, you know, quasi-boring popular music. Mm. Yeah. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to think about. And when you, when you start explaining the South Bronx that way, it, it, it starts clarifying a lot of what we see in the scene, especially out of New York City. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, get, I get real emotional about it because, you know, I, I see how, how my parents dealt with the South Bronx. The, you know, I always say the system, but, you know, it's, it's just what they had to deal with. Section A, you know, Section A, they had to deal with... Um, we had to lie, you know, to the <clears throat> to the housing authorities that my dad didn't live with us so that we could obtain housing. You know, it was it was unbelievable that if you were fatherless on paper, the housing authority would grant you a place to live in. But if you had a daddy, they would make it so impossible for you to have a place. You know, so in the South Bronx at a certain time, a lot were fatherless on paper and and that created a lot of issues because sometimes housing would come check up and the father had to hide or you would have to say hey you know housing's coming on wednesday don't come home oh it was ridiculous man it was crazy so, yeah and you see yeah, that crazy. you see that through through the systemic racism and and how that led oh. to i mean there's there's yeah. so many deep ramifications of, of oh, why man, we are crazy. where we are yeah. But, you know, you see, but these stories, you know, and there's always the beautiful side of a negative side. And, and you know, and, and this, this, this album, you know, just touches the tip of it. But it puts you in the realm of understanding what I see and what the bronze is really about. You know, and, and I tell people, look, yeah, I play with Winton. I've been around Stevie Wonder. I've seen, you know, I've seen everybody. You know, I've seen Sting. I've been around, you name them. But I never, ever stop telling people who I am and where I'm from. Because the minute I do that, it's the minute I lose my culture and my art. You know, the Bronx is very, very sacred to me. You know, and it's um, it's the birthplace to my artistry. Yeah, and it, it comes out in the South Bronx story. If you if, if anyone hasn't taken a listen to it, it's it's one of those albums that's going to move you and change you for sure. I mean, you, you really feel like for me, my my visceral reaction was it made me want to explore the subgenres that made it 
what it was, which I think is a really powerful thing in music where it makes you start exploring more. It's great. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Can I would tell everybody to check that out. Yeah. I'm curious about the role of being a composer along with being a bass player. When you're thinking about composition, are you thinking in bass lines? Do you think with other instruments? I know we talked about the guitar, but you played piano, you played clarinet, you've been exposed to so many instruments. How do you compose that makes it different? Or how do you compose that is a way that's very aligned with how you play bass? That's a great question. It, it, it varies with with song. Um, I sometimes write uh, a bass line for a song um, and then create the story behind it. On this project, the song Moses on the Cross starts off with a bass line. It was a bass line that I, I, I just started messing around with. And I liked it so much that I recorded it. I was like, beep do 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 boom bling doom boom bling doom boom beep do 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 boom boom a basic kind of blues structure. And then when I was writing for the project, I kept hearing that I was like, man, this is hip. I like this bass line. And then I started creating a melody to it, you know. And then I was then I started creating like a a huge. Uh, format to it and that's just one way i compose another way is i create a melody you know or i'll do like how bach you know did it where there's a melody and a bass line to a song or melody to you know chord structures to it and just with just write the melody how i hear it and then come back to it and create a format to it and uh, or sometimes it just comes naturally you know or sometimes i just play chords and i record chords Oh, I like this passage going here. And then slowly I'll start thinking of a melody that rises on top of it. Yeah, it's amazing. So I'm really, last area I'm really curious about with your playing and your style is you've done so much improv and at the same time you've done so much composition. And they're not diametrically opposed. I think they both complement one another in very dynamic ways, but they're very different styles of showing up. When someone is playing a composition, they're putting in their feel, but they're following the sheet music. They're following what, what is there. On improv, we're going to see what happens when things show up today, no matter what goes down. How do you think about playing improv versus composition? Is it a different attack for you? Is it a different approach? How do you see those two worlds? Well, I try, I try to keep improv in everything I do because that's the beauty of jazz. And that's the beauty of being a human, Right. We improv every day. We're improving right now as we talk. You know, nothing is written for us. I mean, yeah, there is a format. We have a format here. There's a specific time. We got to get this done. You know, you have to, you know, answer my question, blah, blah, blah. In music, I think the same thing. You know, yeah, there's a composition. There's a format. We got to start it and we got to end it. There are chord changes that that's the highway to the sound of this music. We must take these highways. However, I'm not going to tell you what lane to take to get on this highway. And believe it or not, the highway, you could also take side streets on the same direction the highway is going. You know, I'm not going to tell you what side street to take. So in music, it's the same thing. So my approach to it is always like that. You know, yeah, there is a structure of uh, composition that you have to respect, you know, because you can't just show up and be like, you know what? I see that you painted this composition in blue, but I'm going to throw red on it. You know, you got to be careful how you do that. Uh, but I always encourage people, musicians, to to use their improv 
improvisational mindset, you know, with the the sense of understanding the composition, you know, and you can start learning how to improvise within the composition. That that's when you really become a great musician, where you start taking what the composer did and analyzing what he's doing, and also slowly creating new new a new vibe on it, you know. So it really, 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 you know, it's a structure of both, of both things. You know? It's it's an amazing thing to watch as it unfolds. It's just such a beautiful form of music and art and, and people and feel. It's, it's yeah. improv has always been such a, a powerful force in, in music. It's incredible. So the, the newish album is called The South Bronx Story. You are on tour with Winton as long as tours and pandemics and who knows what is happening. Oh my God. Yeah, I know. But you've been playing some shows, haven't you? We did. We were able to go to Europe and, and make up some of the canceled uh, concerts that were canceled, you know, before the pandemic or during the pandemic. So that was great to go back. Uh, we have something coming up in the fall. We're just, you know, praying to God that, you know, whatever happens with these new uh, variants, you know, that there could be uh, controlled with, with vaccines and whatnot. So we're still waiting to see if they're going to be confirmed. But, you know, Jazz Lincoln Center, I got to tell you, Mitch, Jazz Lincoln Center has been on top of on top of trying to promote as much music through um, through online classes, online shows. I mean, they're trying to stay in contact with their subscribers and their audience, you know, and, and we've been doing the same individually. So, you know, we're, we're going to do our best, Mitch, you know, and I'm going to do my best myself to try to go out there and keep in contact with all the audience. And I'm going to hold in my thoughts the idea that the next Montreal Jazz Festival, you and I can fist bump or have a coffee together. <laughs> oh, man, we, we planned that. Okay. Whoever's listening to this now, make sure that we get this done. Mitch and Carlos will have coffee, fist bump, and probably my project will be presented out there. So That would be amazing. <laughs> hey, Carlos, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And for those who are listening, thank you so much. And thank you for your support to this music. And to Mitch, thank you. Uh... 